0: Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio, and here is your host, Gary Cocholillo.
1: Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cocholillo. and before we get started, I'd like to thank all my listeners for listening, and also thank my contributors to the show. Who are executive producer Candace Mm -hmm. Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, senior editor Amanda Steele, author of Ghosts of Me, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And if you are interested in becoming a contributor to the show, just go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com. And now, without any further ado, our guest for today is Dennis Stone. He is the owner of the American Stonehenge. Thank you for coming on today.
2: Oh, thank you, Gary, for having me on. Uh, I really appreciate it.
1: Um, so how did you become the owner of Stonehenge, of the American Stonehenge?
2: Yeah, it goes back uh, to my dad, Robert Stone. Um, he got involved with it back in 1955. And um, so our family's been in it almost uh, about 65 years now. My dad um, was an AT&T Bell Laboratories engineer, and he was listening to the radio one night, just like what we're doing now, talking about these uh, strange stone ruins located in Salem, New Hampshire, about eight miles from where he lived. And it was on one of the biggest radio stations in New England, right out of Boston. It was an AM station. On Friday nights, they had a show called Yankee Arms. And Alton Hall Blackington was his talk show host. And it had been on since the late forties, I guess, this particular show. And my dad used to listen to it even up in um, when he was in the Coast Guard in the early fifties, up in Labrador. You could get it on the in the evening on the skipway. You could kind of catch up with what was going on back in New England and also uh, the show, I guess he enjoyed it. So this particular night they're talking about these Strange Stones ruins, uh, in North Salem, New Hampshire and it really fascinated my dad, particularly because was only eight miles away and never had heard of these stone ruins before. So um, it really, you know, kind of uh, blew him away, basically, having these these mysterious ruins and everything. And a couple of days later, he was at a barbershop uh, in the same town we lived in, Derry, uh, New Hampshire. And uh, he was looking at a magazine, waiting to have his hair cut. And as he opened it up and flipped through it, they had different features about New Hampshire and as he opened one of them, he saw these uh, pictures of these stone ruins, and then he saw the, the title of the article, and it was about the same site that he'd heard just a couple of days before on uh, on that radio station. And uh, when he asked the barber if he could keep the magazine, the barber said, well, how old is that? It was a 1952 magazine called New Hampshire Profiles, and had been sitting in the barber shop for about three years. So if it hadn't been for the fact somebody didn't throw the magazine away, we would be Having our discussion this evening, you know, mm-hmm. because my dad's interest. And uh, he passed away about 11 years ago, but through his entire life, he was interested in this site plus other sites in the Northeast that might be related to this. And so it's through my dad that, um, you know, I got the site. Um, I've been working, I started working there as a guide in 1970. And uh, so I've been working there over 50 years. And Actually, in 68, 69, I put bumper stickers on cars, you know, as a kid. So I kind of grew up with the place. Mm -hmm. And I have a son. He's 32 years old. He's an engineer like my dad. And he's like the third generation. And we just had a granddaughter born um, back on September 11th last year. So we have like four generations now. And she's at the Hill all the time because her mom um, works at our place. And uh, she's been with us for, I guess, about uh, 11 years. She met my son in college. So it's kind of a fourth generation uh, of family over the site.
1: I think that's really cool that this site is privately owned. It didn't fall into the hands of t- some type of state park or, or federal park type of organization.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah, uh, we do enjoy national parks and state parks, but we have kind of a private park, I guess. And mm-hmm. It- It's about 110 acres. Um, It was designated as a state historic site in 1970, but it's not owned by the state. In fact, I think most of the state historic sites in New Hampshire, it was a percentage, like 80 percent are actually on private properties. The other 20 percent or whatever the number is, is actually owned by the state of New Hampshire. But, um, you know, we have a sign on one of the roads. It's one of those historic markers. And uh, so that was kind of a nice recognition, but it is privately owned and owned. Operated and actually, the property's always been in private hands going back into the uh, 1600s, I guess, was part of Haverhill, Massachusetts. So, uh, you know, so uh, we're protecting it, taking care of it. And when my dad got involved, there were about 20 acres, so it's part of the hill that was part of this original, you know, land that had these structures. But over the uh, years, during the late 50s and early 60s, and I think up to 1972, I remember my dad was purchasing some of the land. Because he wanted the entire hilltop protected. And during that time, and even now, New Hampshire really growing, you know, uh, a lot of homes going up and everything. Uh, in fact, our neighbors next door have 60 acres, and just recently they subdivided that. It's been in their family for generations, and they're starting to put homes on it. It was an old farm. And, uh, you know, we need to, I guess, build homes and, you know, move forward. But unfortunately, sometimes these old farms, you know, they get, you know, the, you know they get developed and then, the farm's gone and everything, you know. It's, it loses that kind of that old New England kind of thing, you know. And uh, and then houses grow up. And we have 57 alignments of the sun, moon, and stars. And these alignments look out to the horizon. So can you imagine going up and watching a, one of the alignments like a summer solstice, which is coming up soon, or a winter mm-hmm. solstice? You know, instead of, that would be really sad, you know. So uh, my dad was, you know, it was really good that he did that, you know, way back when basically, to, to protect the entire hilltop.
1: Interesting. When I was looking at the uh, at some pictures of it that Jared was showing me, um, to me, it almost looked like a giant sundial.
2: Oh, were they aerial shots of the site from yeah. above? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. Satellite? Yeah, it does look like that. Uh, in fact, we started opening up those clearings in 1965. That's when the astronomical work began. Um you know, almost uh, 60 years ago. And it was after a, a CBS special about Stonehenge in England. I believe it was called The Mysteries of Stonehenge. I've seen the uh, I've seen that particular documentary twice, but it's been years. And it was kind of based on a book by Gerald Hopkins from the Harvard uh, Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Mass. And he was originally from England. But Gerald Hopkins wrote a book called Stonehenge Decoded. And I think he put out a paper on it in 63. And in 65, the book came out. And that really got a lot of uh, researchers at our place interested in the astronomy. And we knew that the stones were standing out in the woods. And they look like big arrowheads all surrounding them all Mm -hmm. all the main. And, you know, we wondered why anybody would go to the, uh, you know, to all that work to quarry these stones, shape them like an arrowhead. And some of these go up to 10 feet tall, you know, and stand them up. And they were a mystery to us. And then in 65, we began clearing the trees to the winter solstice sunset monolith as we know it today. And they opened up that clearing in 1967. It was finished. They had to clear out about 800 feet of trees just for that one avenue. And about 100, well, between 50 and 100 feet wide, roughly, the avenue. So you could see the horizon. You could see the stone, you know, sitting there and the horizon open behind it. So when the sun set, it would actually set on the point of the stone. And in 67, I saw the first pictures about three weeks ago from our former died in 1963 through 69 and he was assistant manager in 69 and he's the one that really began clearing up the trees uh and he was there in 67 and he sent me some photographs in fact he brought the album and just recently he lives up in maine a couple hours away now but um it showed actually in 67 on the winter solstice you could see the glow of the sun but it was kind of obscured too by the clouds it was like a thin layer of clouds so you couldn't really see the ball of the sun but you could see where the brightness of it was but it wasn't until three years later, 1970, that he actually came back. Uh, and my dad and a neighbor we went up there through about a foot of snow. And we actually stood there in the afternoon of, uh, I guess it was December 20th, probably, 1970. And we actually saw a brilliant sun stand on top of that monolith. And it's like, okay, that's pretty cool. And uh, we have a painting up in the visitor center today made from that, that event. My dad painted it, actually. He's kind of an artist. So... Mm-hmm. Um, The what we call astronomy today began back in 65 and right through the uh, late 60s, right into the early 70s. And recently we've been doing a forest management program over the 110 acres, thinning out all the trees, basically uh, diseased trees, mature trees, old trees. And we wanted to open up those avenues to be wider so you could actually watch the sun, moon, or stars actually set over these stones without the limbs and the trees being in the way. So that was a two-year project, and it just wrapped up of a licensed forester was just in two days ago, kind of uh, walking around the property to make sure everything was done properly. And so uh, that kind of concluded that two-year program, and we're very happy with it. We actually opened up some of the lunar alignments, which were never open. The moon goes through an 18-and-a-half-year cycle, and we never had what we call the lunar major standstills, north and south, open uh, since 1965. We just have never got to it yet. And we finally had these people come in with the equipment, and they removed those trees, and in 2025, we'll watch that event. If the weather cooperates, because we're in New England, there you know, always changes. But we'll hope to watch that in 2025, actually, that particular lunar event. And the next time after that will be 18 and a half years. So, you know, if you miss it, you know, you got to wait almost uh, 20 years to see it again. So, uh, so it's been a long time and uh, five decades of working on the astronomical uh, alignments.
1: So, so what do you think the site is? Do you think it's some type of calendar?
2: Yeah, it actually uh, we have the uh, sun going through its 12, basically one-year cycle, mm-hmm. and it goes through the quarter days, summer, winter, spring, and fall, but the cross-quarter days, which are the days in between, roughly uh, May 1st, August 1st, um, November 1st, and February 1st, we have those alignments. And some of the ancient megalithic sites have that, uh, out west some of the mounds have that, like Cahokia Mound State Park up into that in Illinois, and has some of the biggest pyramids. Uh, in North America, but also in the world. And they had those cross quarter days and the quarter days marked by big wooden poles originally. And I've been to Mesa Verde a couple times in Colorado and they had those alignments. So it's not just the Europe, Western European Neolithic into the Bronze Age thing, but it happened over here too. So you divide a year into eight, eight parts. And they might have had celebrations on those days, you know. Um, and then we have uh, the lunar cycle, as I mentioned before. Uh, it's 18 and a half years, but halfway through that is what they call a lunar minor standstill, you know, moon rising and setting. And that will be in, I think, 2034. I've got to pull up the dates on that. So we'll be watching for that, too. Uh, and then we have 24 star alignments. Um, and so there's 57 alignments in total. So it's kind of a complex arrangement with all these stones to mark these different events, you know. Um, it's quite sophisticated. So it's a, it is a calendar, but um, these people were looking at the heavens. And more recently, in the last five years, uh, spring of 2016, when I retired from the airlines, uh, I started finding these walls that are shaped like snakes with a head, a body, and a tail. And I didn't have any reference to any others anywhere else, you know, anywhere. But we went to a meeting in the fall of 2016 in Groton, Connecticut. And the group is called New England Antiquities Research Association. And they have a nice website. It's uh, nera.org. My dad started the group in 1964, a nonprofit organization to look at these stone ruins around the Northeast. And when I was at the meeting with my wife, one of the gentlemen was speaking about uh, North Stonington, Connecticut. And we didn't know North Stonington had any any structures, you know, similar to ours or others in the the Northeast. But they have something like 8,000 different stone features scattered over 35,000 acres. And as a gentleman did his PowerPoint presentation, uh, he started showing some of his serpent walls. And it turns out they have about 400 of them there. And they range from 30 feet length up to about 300. And they can be straight or linear, rectilinear with like a 90-degree head or tail. Uh, And they can also be uh, curved, kind of curvilinear. They can also loop around and it kind of looks like a serpent biting its tail, or what we call the Ouroboros. Mm -hmm. So they have all these different designs down there. And I almost fell off my seat because we found by then... Uh, I think we found about five or six of them by the fall of 2016 after finding the very first one in the spring. And I'm like, that's what we have at our site. A lady after this gentleman spoke from Colorado, the eastern part of Colorado. And she's showing some of the stone features there that resemble some of the ones at our site and others in New England. Standing stones, piles of rocks we call carns, and also walls that are shaped like the letter D as a delta. And I saw my first one they put it together the diorama that's in our museum. So when you enter our visitor center, the first thing you'll see is a diorama covering about 30 acres of the 110 acres. And I built that in college in 1977, over the course of 76, 77, the winter. And I noticed doing this, that it's a wall shaped like the letter D. It's kind of a big area. But I didn't know, you know, there were any others. But North Stonington has several of them, the same patent, and the lady from Colorado she's showing her serpentine walls, and then she shows her D-shaped delta wall, just like one of ours. you know? It's like, wow, similar features, 2,000 miles away. We don't know what the meanings of these D-shaped walls are, but they do exist, and they do repeat in different places, not only in the Northeast, but all the way up to Colorado. But one of her serpentine walls, it was kind of a linear straight wall, if I recall, but the head was triangular stone. And when my wife and I saw that, you know, we both poked each other and said, that's what that looks like ours. You know, the same kind of shaped head with a body going behind it. The uh, serpent wall thing is basically until five years ago. I didn't have any clue, again, that these existed anywhere. But uh, there's a gentleman from Jacksonville State University in Alabama. And they have a 40 square mile area with standing stones, what we call monoliths. They have carns, those big piles of rocks. And then they have uh, serpent walls they call rattlesnake walls and they've been looking at those since the 1970s and of course we didn't know about that and they didn't know about ours so i kind of introduced myself to a dr holstein that's been working on them since the 70s and now he's quite fascinated by what we have up here he did a youtube video recently and he mentions that the northeast has these stone walls too so there's some sort of a maybe an ancient tradition of building these serpent walls they go right out to weed california believe it or not And that's right near Mount Shasta town. It's kind of a big area out there. They have wall patents that look like ours, but also serpentine walls all the way up to the West Coast.
1: Wow. So there's one of these here in Alabama?
2: Yeah. Yeah, in Alabama. um, So the gentleman's uh, from Jacksonville State University, Dr. Holstein. And he invited me down last year twice. We tried to get down there, but C-19, we just didn't bother traveling. (laughs) And I work for American, so I can, you know, I, I, I was there for years at American, so I'd fly on my airline to get there. But we decided not to do it last year. You know, we canceled twice, but we're going to meet him at the university. And then he's going to drive us to show us some of these cairns, standing stones, and some of the uh, the rattlesnake walls. And uh, I sent them pictures of ours. I told them about the ones in North Stonington, but they're in the Berkshires and in Massachusetts, and they're up in Vermont. Um, the Hudson Valley has many of them, Westchester uh, county, Putnam County, uh, and going from the Hudson River west towards Monticello, Bethel, and uh, Woodstock, New York, in that area, there's more of these serpent walls, and they go right into Pennsylvania, too. Um, wow. In fact, the journal comes out twice a year, and I believe it was a year ago, could have been a year and a half ago, the journal had a picture from 1997, over 20 years ago, and they showed this, like a big head with a body going behind it, kind of like um, undulating if you will, a stone wall that kind of weaved back and forth from this big, like a you know pile of rocks that looks like a head. They didn't know what it was in 1997, but we think today it was another serpentine wall. And you look at the picture and say, "Oh yes, it's just like the ones you know up here or down in you know uh, North Stonington, Connecticut, and elsewhere." So they took a you know a 23-year-old picture and put it on the front cover of the journal, and I, I almost fell off my rock when I saw that. I said, "Wow!" And then to read that 1997, somebody had photographed it and thought it was so unusual back then. But they didn't call it a servant wall back then. They didn't like us. They didn't know what
1: it was. Wow, you know, it reminds me um, where I grew up in New Jersey. There was um, on top of a hill. There was a, this a, a long rock wall, and huh. and I didn't know what it was. And I don't. Know, I was always told that it was like made by. It was like a slave wall. It was made by slaves. Um, and and after you know, they eventually the tore it down and built a housing development over it. <laughs> but uh, yeah. now, now I have a question. Like, I'm wondering like, well, I wonder if this was, was not what the, I was told it was, you know? Um, That's kind of
2: up here. You know, we've been told that all the walls you see in New England is about 240,000 miles of walls. We have the most walls, I guess, of any place on earth. I've been to Ireland, too, and I thought they had a lot of walls in Ireland. But I guess New England has the most walls. And I guess they started building them in the 1700s, you know, to clear fields so they could plow and not hit a rock. They make nice fences, you know, stock fences or just also boundaries. Mm-hmm. And, again, just a way of getting rid of stones, you know. So they serve three purposes in some cases. And, and sometimes you look up boundaries, you'll see that the walls are sitting on, right on top of the boundary. It makes sense, you know. But uh, farmer's walls are usually of uh, rounded-type rocks of what we call field stones left by the glaciers. And they're pretty straight. There are some exceptions, you know, There's some do turn and bend a little bit. But generally, they're fairly straight. Um, But the walls, like at our site, North Stonington and some of the other places, and like I mentioned, there's over 800 different sites in the northeast going right down into Pennsylvania. These walls, they turn, they twist, they bend. And we have found out more recently they seem to go from, like, uh, a glacial boulder, and they'll head off to another glacial boulder, and then they might— deer in a different direction they'll zigzag over a boulder and they'll zigzag back to another boulder whereas a farmer might use you know a boulder as a reference and then continue straight beyond it you know and make a nice pond and uh, field clearing or stock fence or whatever but these walls they, they twist all over the place and they one day thing my dad noticed when he first got involved in the 50s uh when he went out and looked at some of the stone walls that covered the entire hilltop pretty much. And they were in the deep woods, so you couldn't really see them that easily. You had to actually go out in the woods. You could get lost up there. I know I did a few times when I was a kid. Um, <clears throat> that these walls are, consist of a lot of big slabs of stone, not just the rounded field stones, but big slabs of stone. Sometimes they're stacked horizontally on top of one another. And the gentleman that uh, spoke about the ones in Ostonington calls that lacework. They're just beautifully flat stones, but there's actually a little bit of artwork the way they put the stones together, you know, one over two over one. But they also kind of have some at diagonals in the wall. You'd have to, you have to see them and like, wow, that's not, that's not normally what you do with these stones, you know? And it takes more time and it's a little bit of an artwork to do this. Um, but they also stood them up as monoliths. And in 2016, I found at our site, the first window in the regular stone wall. These are lintel windows. They might be like a foot and a half long, uh, maybe a foot or so tall. But they vary in you know size, length, and width, as well as height. And uh, we have found fourteen of them in the last five years. And one of the serpent walls uh, has four of them adjacent to each other. And one of our assistant archaeologists is also a professional stonemason. He uh, looked at a stone next to the big one. There was like four was big window. The first one I found, and we found the three others, a little bit smaller adjacent to it. And the stone is standing next to the big one. It's just stuck up next to the wall. And he goes, you know what? That looks like it's a, like a shutter. It would fit perfectly into that, you know, that hole.
1: I or, saw or that window. one.
2: So we normally don't touch things up there. We try not to do it. archaeologically. try to leave everything as much untouched as possible. You know, um, it's not always possible, but as an experiment and said, Do you mind if I remove this from the soil and stand you know, move it and see if it fits in there? I said, Well, it's an experiment. Uh we won't know until we try. And we took pictures of it and everything. And then we put it back exactly where we found it, where it sits today. But we took it and we put it inside and the thin- thing fit perfectly as a shutter. And since then we've noticed that there are other shutters laying next to some of these other walls, uh windows. So it looks like they had the ability to block the window. If, if that's what it is, and then open it. Some people have called these windows soul holes, you know, for the soul to go through. Uh, there there are examples in England, in the southwest part of England, and I believe they call them spirit, spirit holes. It's where the wind will blow and the spirit will go through the hole. It's it's one of those things. How do you prove that? I don't know. Maybe it's folklore, oral tradition, maybe, you know, something like that. But, you know, this these walls are so old that we don't know what the original builders were thinking. We can only speculate. But there's no practical use for these windows, and they're located all over the hill. So we have about 14 serpent walls, and we have uh, 14 windows we've discovered so far on the hilltop. And that's all in the last five years.
1: That's incredible that you're still making all these new discoveries. In fact, when I was watching one of the videos with Jared uh, somebody pointing out a stone with uh, some straight lines marked on it that nobody noticed before.
2: Oh yes, right. Uh, it, I think is that the one they mentioned that looked a little bit like the uh, the uh, Phoenician letter. Possibly? Yes,
1: yes, it looked very Phoenician.
2: I right away, you know, it, it would be the A or alpha, I guess it is, or the or the bull, you know, and it's the head of the bull with a line drawn straight up and down, and because in our alphabet we've latin alphabet. that they've turned at 90 degrees so it's vertical but um it is interesting i've never noticed it but even if it's all natural i'd like a geologist just to make sure that it, it is it looks like it could be natural but somebody must have saw that and he put it into the wall because it's kind of you know it has a certain beauty to it you know and kind of to show it off you know mm-hmm. but i'd like to say you know it's all natural or whatever because part of it could be carved you know but um but I'm not sure about that, you know. But I, we found it about two weeks ago, I think. So that's another new discovery. And uh, it's near the summer solstice sunset. And that's coming up, like I mentioned, just in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Summer solstice sunset. I found a stone standing right very close to that, what looks like the uh, Phoenician letter A. Um, and it actually, it's a standing mo- it's a monolith. And it has a big v-groove on it i think you showed that on the video too kind of a v-groove with us standing next to it right. and that the stone that stood on its end when you get a big slab and you stand it on its end it's called an orthostat it could be just in a stone wall but it also can be in a structure and we have both at our site um so it's a huge slab and it's been quarried off the bedrock somebody stood it up vertically and that v-groove aligns with that which could be just a coincidence. But then beyond that is the end of a wall that's stacked and ends right on that same alignment. And again, you could say, well, those three points are coincidental. It looks like a gun sight, you know, looking right at it, looking kind of in an authorly direction. <clears throat> beyond that, there's two stone circles I've discovered. And uh, one of them, uh, that line goes tangent to one side of the circle. And the stone circles are probably about... Seven or eight feet across consisting of maybe half a dozen stone circles in a you know in a kind of a circular fashion and about maybe 60 feet or 50 feet beyond that there's another stone circle and if there's only one I'd say maybe it's natural you know it could just be a coincidence again but it's another stone circle and that line goes directly right through the center of it so it's like the V, kind of V shape there's the uh, slab these the end of a wall that actually rises up and it stops right there in line with it and you're looking off in the distance and all these things line up and then beyond that at the two stone circles. So it's like five points in that line. I'm, I'm thinking it's a star alignment, but we have to have somebody actually, you know, take the, you know, the azimuth of that and calculate what star might have been over that, you know, at the time. It's kind of a north-westly direction that it's looking at. Hmm. So I idea what what it is. Well, we found that only about four or five years ago, too. We've been riding by that stone, walking by that stone, but there was just enough brush that you couldn't see the big V-shape on the top of the stone or anything beyond it, you know? So that was quite a, quite a find, too.
1: That's incredible. When I was watching some of the videos, one of the things I noticed, like, now that you're clearing out all the trees, you have this view from the top of that hill to all these other hilltops surrounding the area. Have those other hilltops been investigated or any other structures been found on those other hills?
2: Yeah, you can see the horizon pretty nicely, and it is about a half a degree uplook from the top of our hill where the astronomical center is. And it makes for a nicer sunrise and sunset, moonrise and moonset. If it was level, a level horizon with our with our hill, it would make uh, if you go to the ocean, you know how the sun looks so distorted, it's beautiful, but it's huge like when it mm-hmm. rises with a mountain for less accurate alignment so in the 70s we're thinking maybe they chose this particular hill because we're kind of in the middle of a bowl with the rim being the horizon just a little bit higher than us and in that horizon actually dips in it it, and has little like little kills or points and then it it dips down what they did is they took advantage of those little dips or notches in the hill and where the like a top of a hill like a point and they actually aligned the alignments with that where they could and the summer solstice sunrise stone is actually asymmetrically shaped. It doesn't look like an arrowhead. It has a, has a point off to one side, off to the left side as you're looking to the northeast, and it slopes down. And when we opened that clearing up in 1973 and we saw the horizon, we saw that the horizon just consists of two hills about five miles away, and they're actually shaped in the same way that I should say the stone is shaped to fit the notch. So they shape this slab of bedrock. They stood it up, and it actually fits into the notch five miles away. In Europe, they call those rising features. So um, that was quite a surprise. You know, that was, uh, gosh, almost 50 years ago we found that out. They have looked at the hills um, that these alignments are on, you know, four or five miles distance. And there are a few structures on some of these hills. And we thought about that in the 1970s. So people would have to get into their car, take a map with them, and then try to go up on a hill and hopefully not trespass on people's property. Today, with Google Earth, it's a much easier to, thing to do, especially when you turn on the satellite. You can really zoom in on the, on the land. But sometimes you have to put your feet on the ground, too, out there and see what's what's there. Um, and there are a few other sites that kind of align with our, our alignments, but they seem to be long-range sites, not you know just a few miles away. Um, my son was using Google Earth in uh, 2012, and he said, well, where's the summer solstice sunrise go? It goes northeast, it goes across Maine, it goes right, you know, towards Hel- uh, Nova Scotia. <clears throat> and then eventually it goes around uh, over the Atlantic Ocean. And what he found out is it ends up in southern England. And he's been to Stonehenge a couple of times. He goes, geez, that's pretty close to, uh, you know, the Salisbury Plain with Stonehenges. And so he kept blowing up the scale on Google Earth. And sure enough, Stonehenge appears. And as he blows it up, it not only appears, but that line, Goes right through one of the large trilithons at Stonehenge. So it's like, wow, you know, that's kind of strange. You know, we never knew that until 2012. And then it made a History Channel show called America on Earth. Um, we started playing around with that a little bit more just for kicks. You know, what's on our true south alignment? And it goes down to Machu Picchu in Peru, the uh, winter solstice sunset alignment goes through the moon pyramid down at tiwatiwakan off in mexico city which i've been to with my dad mm-hmm. and sunset set goes through uh pablo Benito, chaco canyon we just got there about 20 months ago and took a tour of uh, mesa verde again we've been there uh hovenweep canyons of the ancients and chaco is a place i really wanted to see too the other ones were absolutely beautiful and hovenweep was surprised was a big surprise but that lineman on the equinox sunset goes right through pablo Benito, which shaped like a big like the letter d too. you know the equinox sunrise goes through the canary islands and there's pyramids there and the line goes right through the truncated pyramids on the canaries the august 1st cross-border day sunrise goes through uh the Giza plateau and through the uh the big pyramid i want to check that one a couple more times though so the you know the, the great pyramid uh seems to be aligned with that and i gotta check it and people can check and say yes you're right on or no you're you made a mistake you know that's fine too you know but um, So a lot of these things are on, like, UNESCO World Heritage Sites, you know, some of these quarter days and cross border days, you know. So, But on Near Hills, yeah, there are sites, and they were looking at that, you know, like say, back in the 70s, checking these out to see if anything's in line with that. Kind of like a ley line kind of an wow. idea, I guess.
1: That blows me away that it aligns with all these other ancient sites.
2: Yeah, they should be double-checked, you know. I mean, we did double-check and triple-check, and I've had other people. I said, please do it because we make a mistake. We'd like to know about it, you know. But so far, nobody either has done, taken me up on it or, you know, they found out that they're right. I know somebody has used Google Maps, and it used to be Google Maps. You know, it's two-dimensional, flat Earth, and some people use that. But I think it automatically, when you go way out, automatically goes to Google Earth, three-dimensional, you know, the sphere shape of the Earth. But but in any event, yeah, it is kind of cool. So if you're standing in our platform and you're looking south, you know, if you had X-ray vision, or Superman vision, maybe he could be looking towards Machu Picchu, for instance, you know, or, uh, you know, Stonehenge looking the other way, you know, the summer solstice sunrise. And uh, my dad died um, right just before Christmas in 2009. He wasn't aware of any of those particular alignments uh, at all, whatsoever, and neither were we, and he didn't know anything about the serpentine walls, um, and he didn't know anything about the windows in the walls, too, even though he spent decades in Towards the end of his life, he used to go out and look at the walls. Uh, 20 years ago, he was actually going out with Dr. Winkler from Penn State. Uh, he was a uh, doctor of astronomy. He had been there since 64, all the way up to about 19, I think 98, 99. He retired and he he met us in 97. He would drive up from Penn State and he did about five years worth of research, particularly the star alignments. But he and my dad would go out on the, on my dad's ATV and ride around and look at the walls and measure them. And my dad actually, you know, it has um, all that data he collected on how long the walls are, how many miles, and everything. There's a lot of miles of walls up there that we think are ancient. They never did see the serpentine shape to them, though. Um, I wish my dad was here now, and and, and Dr. Winkle could be here to look at these and give their two cents. You know, it's probably surprised too. You know, that these things exist. Um, so, you know, they. Were, my dad was telling me, because I think these walls are as important as the main site. The main site is where most of the stone ruins are located, covering about one acre where that chain link fence kind of surrounds it. But um, the whole hilltop, I think, is important. And I think it's all linked together. You know, the chain link fence was put up in 1937 by the first researcher, William Goodwin. And um, that's where most of the focus in the early days was inside the fence, that one acre area where all the structures are. And they did look at a couple other structures outside of that. But today we look at the entire hill with all these, you know, 14 serpentine walls, windows, 34 quarry sites. Those are some of the big slabs that are actually removed from the bedrock and they're still sitting there today. Um, And we found the first one in 1982 and it was propped up. And when they did an excavation the next year, they found all the little stone flakes several inches down on the bedrock. The dirt had accumulated over years burying that. So the original builders, they would go out and look at the bedrock, which was mostly exposed, we think, at that time, 4,000 years ago, and they would work a fissure crack in the bedrock, maybe look for where roots penetrated the bedrock, too. And our bedrock's granite, it's foliated, it does come up in layers, like peeling back an onion ring, if you, uh, onion, if you will. But, um, so they found the first one in 82, they excavated it, and the state archaeologist, Dr. Gary Hume, actually, he was kind of uh, watching this whole thing, kind of observing it. Uh, And Dr. David Stewart-Smith, our archaeologist, actually was the one conducting that. And when they dug down, they found all the little flakes where somebody had been taking a stone and they were slamming the edge of the stone and they left it serrated. They're actually shaping or dressing the stone using a stone hammer. So Dr. Gary Hume said it's basically like shaping a ton and a half arrowhead. It's stone age technology, not metal age technology. And that's the way the big slabs are in the main site the monoliths that are the astronomical alignments, those big orthostats I mentioned, and the rest of the uh, big slabs like the sacrificial table, all of those stones were quarried. And all the roof slabs in the site, these are multi-ton roof slabs, don't show any signs of metal tools. They were actually shaped using percussion flaking with a stone hammer. And like I mentioned, we have about 34 now we've located, most of them just in the last couple of years, up to 1,000 people in the main site. They're still sitting out in the woods. They're propped up artificially. And you can see the edges of it kind of serrated. I'm like, oh, they've been, they were smashing it here. They haven't been excavated, only that one was. Maybe we should do another one someday, perhaps. But it looks like the builders, whoever they were, had a bigger plan. And they were preparing all these big stones to be hauled up the hill. And again, some up to 1,000 feet down the hill, be brought up the hill. Uh, these are multi-ton slabs to be used in construction. So I think they had a bigger plan for the place. And then it was abandoned. We we, uh, for many, many decades, at least I, I think my dad thought, well, maybe this site was complete. It was used, you know, many, many years and then eventually abandoned, you know. But it looks like these people had a, a bigger idea, you know, a bigger thing to do there, you know, to build it bigger. And then they and then they stopped.
1: What kind of populate? I mean, 34 different quarry locations. That's a lot. Um, so, so that, to me, tells me that those... Already probably a pretty large population involved in the building of the site
2: yeah uh, that's a whole guess to one of the big questions how many people were involved with the site was it a you know a little bit smaller group over many many years or was it a bigger group over fewer years Dr. Winkler actually um, he uh, I have his uh, publication I forget how many pages like forty or 50 pages with diagrams and everything. And he believe he believes that the site was built um, over about oh gosh uh, three different stages, uh, covering a couple thousand years. And he actually has like stage one in the time period, and then stage two, and then stage three going into like uh, just before uh, you know Plymouth Plantation. You know, before actually around the time that Columbus came over. You know, it was a final stage. So it's quite a quite a few a couple of centuries and. What he based it on was both the uh, astronomical data, you know, when the alignments would work, particularly the star, the 24 star alignments. But he also uh, used the carbon dating, So we had 12 different carbon datings taken from about 1966 up to about 1995. And now we're doing optically stimulated luminescence. So it's been, uh, oh gosh, over 25 years that we've done the last dating on the site. And in 1995, 94, 93, I think we did about five different uh, carbon datings. Actually, three were done by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute on Woods Hole, Massachusetts. They did particle acceleration tests. And then two were done by Geochrome Laboratories, which used to be in Cambridge, Mass. They moved up to, I think, to Lowell, Massachusetts. And they, that company, did some of our datings going back to the 1960s, some of our carbon datings. But the optically stimulated luminescence, The results used to take up to five years to get. It was a really long, a long process, I guess. They got it down to about a year now. And our, on September 11th, uh, the day my granddaughter was born, we had a team of 24, about 24 people on the site all day collecting four cores, three from what we call the Oracle Chamber, which is the biggest chamber in the main site. And then the Watch House, which is a satellite structure located about maybe 300 feet from the main site. And the watch house is a fantastic structure. It has so many different things going on with it. But they actually got a core from that uh, the wall in front of that chamber. And uh, we're waiting for all the results. That week, back on 9-11, that whole week, Dr. Feathers was out from the University of Washington. He had two assistants from Brookhaven National Laboratory. Um, They did, I think, five other places. I think um, they were in New York for one of them, I think, Connecticut. Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. And I believe in Hampshire they had another place. And then they came back and they took more recently. So I think there's 12 places in the northeast from Pennsylvania all the way into New England. And um, I think ours are going to be the first that they're going to process. And then the other ones will start coming up with the actual dates, you know, the results, which will be very exciting. You know, Not only our site, but I'm very excited, as much excited to see what they find elsewhere for dates, to see how they relate to our site. Um, an optically stimulated luminescence is ba- basically you can date dirt or you can take rock. And it's when the rock or the dirt saw the light the last time it saw light. Uh, so when the dirt's in the ground or the rock is underground, uh, it's picking up radioactivity. And once it becomes exposed uh, to sunlight, so if you dig in a hole in the ground and you have an artifact down there, a wa- stone wall, as soon as you expose that to the light, you basically destroyed the, uh, the data, you know. So it has to be done in the dock room environment. And they take these cores and they drive them into the ground. And then when they take the dirt out of the cores, it's all done inside of a tent. And the tent has all these tops they put over. So it's, I guess, pretty much black. They can use red light in there, though, just like a dock room. And they take all the dirt out of the the cores. They package it up, you know. And then they ship it to the laboratory eventually. And then they come up with a date. Um, in the holes where they took the cores, they put little um, sensors. I think they call them dosimeters, is the way I heard pronounce. And they collect um, the radioactivity in the hole for one year, and that's used to actually calibrate the dates. So we'll get the dates we'll get the dates uncalibrated first, and then they come and they collect those little dosimeters all over New England, including for at our site. And they'll take them, they'll send them to the laboratory, and they'll have a more accurate date once they use that for the calibration process. So um, it's kind of exciting. And the Oracle Chamber, again, have three cores. The uh, watch house, the wall in front of it is one core. And then um, in 2011, our Dr. David Stewart Smith, I mentioned before, he just passed away in 2016. He actually was involved with taking cores from a chamber called the Upton Chamber in Upton, Massachusetts. And um, the results took almost five years to get back. And I think it came out just before he passed away and 2016 and the date on the entrance of the structure the most recent date was 1488 that's before columbus came over here and they had some other dates uh they got to and i can't remember the dates but they were a little bit earlier than that so the the thought by mainstream archaeologists and scholars and historians is that chambers like the upton chamber and our site and other sites in the northeast must be built by farmers in the last two or three hundred years and yet this date. Fort Columbus, so it's not a colonial construction. And when in Pennsylvania, they did uh, 2018. The results uh, came out in two years, so you know it was getting a little bit faster. The result on that terracing down in Pennsylvania, and again, I think people thought, oh, it must be built by a farmer a couple hundred years ago. Uh, The date came, and there were several cores, and they got several different dates from the cores. The earliest core was about 3,000 and maybe 35 BC. So over 5,000 years ago. Wow. It was like 500 A.D., and I think they call it the weighted average or the central date, was about roughly, I'm going to say roughly, so it called me, I think it was about 570 B.C. So, again, it wasn't colonial or post-colonial 400 years old. This stonework down there was made by somebody going back perhaps as early as 5,000 years ago. Um, so... That was exciting, you know. Um, so we're just standing by for our results. And from what we know from Dr. Feathers, he communicated with uh, my publicist, Mark Eddy, this week. He said basically um, he'll be looking at the sites in the Northeast, all the different cores, and he'll be calibrating. I'm uh, not calibrating. He'll be analyzing them in early July. So maybe the middle of July we'll start to get some of the uncalibrated dates. And maybe in August, once they collect those little sensors, they'll be able to give us more accurate date on those. Oh, so uh, an exciting time. It is.
1: I can't yeah. wait to find out what those results are.
2: Um, well, you know, uh, people are interested. Like, they keep asking me, you got any results? And I keep doing the same thing. Uh, the New England Antiquities Research Association, I'm kind of talking to them because they have the dream team the OSL dream came and they're the ones that basically are in contact with uh, Dr. Feathers even though my publicist reached out to him and he was very gracious in answering the question you know so uh, yeah I'm everybody's on pins and needles saying when's the results coming out so I think we'll have to wait till probably middle of July when we start getting them you know so uh, not too much longer two months I guess wow it's incredible it, it
1: totally changes our, our view on who's living here in North
2: America and the fact that people are building stone you know stone constructions all over the northeast and with similar kind of stone features all the way up to the west coast i mean that's another big question are these people were they you know were they in communications with people on the other side of the continent um i guess when they start dating these and if they can start dating the ones in on the west coast and the ones in colorado and we can see what time periods they are if they're not in the same time period um and there's more questions, you know, why do they still look similar? All these, you know, serpentine walls, the letter D shaped walls, and all these other features. But if they're in a similar time period, maybe people were trading with one another, you know, from region to region, and some of these ideas were spread by diffusion, you know. But it's uh, a lot of speculation at this time because we just don't have the data, you know. Uh, it's kind of fun, but, you know, once we get the, once we start dating these sites and, um, you know it's so good that Dr. Feathers came out I think a month ago, all the way from Washington again to do some more knowing these sites, including New York, you know so um, right. uh, those dates are interesting, then maybe there'll be funding to, to do more and more of these sites, you know, and that'll be great you know to start to date these places, you know I mean that's right. the data we really need you know see are these things historic or are they prehistoric?
1: It's incredible. Um, one, one of the things that always, when I was looking at the, the pictures and, and, and the serpents, and the first thing to, that came to my mind is that it could be Mayan.
2: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> you know, I mean, uh, they had the Cuckoo Clan down Yucatan. My dad and I have been there. My, my wife has been down there too. Um, and then the Aztecs had Quetzalcoatl, be mm-hmm. the bearded serpent. The plume serpent tradition comes out, I think, of Mexico. It's a two-horned serpent mixed way into the Ohio Valley, from what I understand. And I've been asked by well, – while the gentleman was vice president of NERA up to recently. And he uh, he kind of resigned from the position, but he asked – he's really into this. And he lives in Connecticut. He lives near the North Stonington site. And uh, he's been doing this for 30 years. He goes, Dennis, do you have a two-horned serpent wall up there? And I go, not that I know of, No. I said I have one. and It looks like the one in Colorado. The head is the same shape as the one in Colorado that I saw, you know, during that PowerPoint presentation. The body's kind of linear. It kind of it kind of uh, goes back and forth slightly. But just behind the head, there's a, the wall actually goes up and then it drops off just behind the head. I said it looks like it's a horn behind the head. And he goes, huh, Well, oh, that's interesting. Well, I was doing some reading in my dad's files, I think. He's got thousands of pages he's quite you know going back almost 100 years his files are so extensive. and I've been uh, putting uh, uh, kind of uh, going through them and uh, by alphabet you know order kind of getting everything organized and we're going to compute put them on the computer too we started doing that too because if you know these files ever get destroyed by fire some of these will never replace them you know um, they, they're one of a kind you know some of the stuff but I found that the uh, the Mic-Moc, up in uh, prince edward island we've been up there and there's a they even have a nice museum up there NICMAC. but they actually that group of native americans made its way into new brunswick i think nova scotia right into and i used to go to nova scotia all the time for american airlines up to halifax but actually right down into maine but their their influence would come right into new england too through trade you know and and sometimes these people would have uh you know uh they would actually you know uh have connections with other Native American tribes. Sometimes it was for warfare. Sometimes it was for trade. Sometimes it was to visit. But their influence would come down, and what they had was a one-horned serpent. And that's what this one looks like to me, you know, that, this one-horned serpent. And back to the Mayan thing at Chikunitsa, we've been there. And on the um, spring and fall equinox, on El Calisto, the staircase, of 91 steps, there's a shadow and light effect of the serpent going down during the, during the equinox, you know. And I wasn't there for that. I would love to be. But I saw the uh, YouTube video on that. read about it. That's a day that our equinox sunrise is illuminating in the back of our watch house, a quartzite stone. And it not only illuminates it, but because of the shape of the doorway of the watch house. We didn't know this until uh, last year. We had the forest management thing clear out enough trees so we could actually see the sun for the very first time uh, in 2020. And we've been speculating For decades, could that thing be lit up by the rising sun? But we couldn't tell. The forest was too thick. Even in in the spring when there's no leaves, you couldn't see it. So we saw it last year and it was like, oh my, we've got a YouTube video. It's 30 seconds long, but it was a 30-minute event. And my daughter-in-law Kat put the whole thing together on a 30-minute YouTube. And it not only um, illuminates the stone, but the shadow and light, because of the shape of the doorway, actually frames the uh, top of the stone and on the left side of the stone. It actually frames it with a shadow and light. It's like, oh, my God, it's so beautiful, and they shaped the doorway to do that. And then over 30 minutes, it looks like a finger pointing back at this this quartzite stone in the back wall. It makes it look like a finger pointing at the fertilized egg, kind of like Newgrange, which I've been to in Ireland, but that's a winter solstice Mm -hmm. sunrise run. The Newport Tower in Rhode Island also has the same thing. looks like an egg in the arch, and on the winter solstice, it illuminates. Um, but on that same morning, that hour is the spring or fall sunrise down in Mexico. They they have that shadow and light effect. And so there's a tie-in with the uh, equinox and the serpent down there. Our watch house, we believe, is the head of a 2,550 feet ser- serpent. And I don't know if I, you saw the LiDAR images that um, we had on that.
1: I did, uh, yeah
2: because um it looks like a head of a serpent looking at you mm-hmm. and right if it's tail after 2550 feet the tail does one more undulation we always noticed that the wall in front and that's where we got the osl date by the way uh the core taken but it actually looks like a hump and then it comes towards you 90 degrees and ends with a pointed tail it's like we would never noticed that how could we not notice that you know and when you see it it's like oh my god it looks like the head of a serpent the tail in front of its mouth and twist with a pointed tail but behind the head actually the the undulation of the wall goes up and down up and down just like you would expect a serpent it goes around 2500 feet counterclockwise and that body of the serpent it uh, touches every astronomical foresight marker so when you have an alignment you have to have a back sight and a foresight kind of like a gun sight and this wall that we think is the body of a serpent Goes around it covers 15 acres and a serpent can mean different things including protection it can be uh it can be sexual you know set of a se- sexuality uh you know in adam and eve and all of that with the serpent saint patty driving up the serpent worship but it, it's in many different cultures but um but when it's biting its tail uh it might be the Ouroboros, and the Ouroboros uh symbol and they had even jewelry made like that. Egyptians had artwork with that, the Greek ancient Greeks did and I think it's in the Americas too. It means etern- eternity
1: mm-hmm. and it
2: can... but ours looks like it's nibbling on the side of its tail and they had that sometimes the tails right in the mouth and sometimes it's nibbling on the side of the tail. If, you know, when you look at if you google it, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's what like it's biting the side of its tail. So um, the head of the um serp, the uh, watch house is also a cross quarter day. It's the um, February 1st cross quarter day, and it's also the lunar minor standstill moonrise alignment. And the first hump behind it is the November 1st cross quarter day alignment. So, I mean, somebody could say that's all purely coincidental, but I don't know how many coincidences there are before it's no longer a coincidence, you know? <laughs> it is. I think it was intentional, but.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it... There is so much going on at that site. It is absolutely fascinating.
2: And we Uh. keep finding, you know, you wonder, Gary, you know, in 10 years, we might be walking by things today, possibly, that are maybe a little bit hidden by brush, Mm -hmm. but maybe just looking at them with our eyes, you know. Um, And some of the things I mentioned already, it's like, how could we possibly miss 14 serpent walls on that hilltop, you know, especially one? time the watch house you know we opened that up in 1958 and every visitor that ever came to our site unless they got off, off the trail walks right by the watch house on the way up to the main site so That's since 1958. but nobody i mean it'd be kind of cool to know if some kid at one time you know how children they sometimes they see things you know mm-hmm. adults don't, some kid says hey that looks like the tail of a snake to the parents and the parents just said yeah okay let's continue on you know but I never heard that before. So, uh, you know, going back about, you know, to 2015, I wouldn't be talking about a lot of what we're talking about tonight. So mm-hmm. you just have things that just
1: yeah, at our site. And I'm sure you're going to be – are you still going to continue clearing parts of the trees out?
2: Yeah, I mean, we're going to probably – we got most of what we wanted. Um, uh, there might be a few instances where we find that, you know – What they cut looks wonderful because I was working with the licensed uh, forest manager, you know, for the last couple of years. He actually, one of the, on the north side of the the hilltop, uh, probably about 800 feet from the main site. The wood's very, very, it's very, very hilly, very steep, but it's also very jungly out there. And they got the equipment out there and they really thinned it out. And I said, I think I have another serpent in that area, but it's so much... Brush and it's a thicket and it's so hard to see. But my licensed forester went out there and he, you know, he came down every few weeks to check up on the progress, you know, make sure they weren't, you know, cutting in the wrong direction or hurting any of our walls. And those guys are great. They really respected the walls out there, the structures and the features. We had to put yellow, uh, like caution tape, all around all these different quarry stones, the serpent walls, the regular walls, and they were good. They only knocked down like one or two rocks because a branch would hit. And one day I stood there and I saw one of the branches hit, so the rock. I actually put the rock back where it came from immediately, you know, because we don't like building things there and moving things around. But if I saw a rock fall off the wall, I think it's pro- probably put it back where it belonged. Those guys are wonderful. But my license, um, the forest manager was down in that area. And he goes, Dennis, he goes, I saw the serpent today. I says, he goes, I think you already mentioned that it might be down there, but you've had a hard time seeing it. He goes, that is a serpent wall. So he was so excited about that. And now he, you know, his eyes are open, and he's doing projects all over New New Hampshire. So maybe, you know, maybe he'll see something out in the woods again and say, hey, we got another one here, you know. But he was (laughs) lying to all of this just like we were. That was too much.
1: That's incredible, really. Um, So what um, – one of the things that that area – um, is also known for some other things, like UFOs. Do you think there's any connection between the paranormal and UFO ph- uh, phenomena and your site?
2: Well, you know, there's a couple of things in New Hampshire, you know, as probably your listeners know, like Betty Hill and mm-hmm. Bonnie.
1: Yep. And- so I had interviewed Kathleen Martin not too long ago, and your site came up in that conversation.
2: Yeah, you know, what. It- they lived, she lived right near Betty in Kingston, New Hampshire when she grew up. And that's only about 10 miles from here. And Kathleen's place, you know, she came over and her Aunt Betty came over here for the first time in 1974. She wanted to meet a psychic named Ethel Myers, who was brought mm-hmm. in here by Holly, and to have a reading. And so that's when my mom you know, Barney had passed away in six so we didn't have a chance to meet Barney, which was too bad. It would have been kind of Really cool to meet him, too, um, and talk to both of them, you know. And uh, Kathleen, I think, uh, joined you know, joined, joined her on, but she hasn't been to our place. I've, I have her as a friend on Facebook, and I met her at the uh, Exeter, New Hampshire UFO convention, which they didn't have last year, but I think they're going to start it up again, you know. Um, and Travis Walton was there, and he came over to our site and visited us. And uh, Kathleen Madden was at our place, but it's been, gosh, probably 45 years at least since she was last there. But, um, but again, my mom and Betty Hill became really good friends starting in 1974. And I think Betty died around 2003. I was listening to um, Coast to Coast, and I think, I'm not sure, it might have been Art Bell at the time, or was it George? And they said, Oh, one of our very good friends this morning, we just found out Betty Hill passed away, you know? So I was like, and Then I told my mom. My mom passed away uh, almost two years ago at about, she was just turning 100 years old. She was 16, 16 days short of 100. But uh, yeah, she made a friend of Betty and Betty's mother, and I'm sure my mom uh, met Kathleen. She was still living over in that area. She's in Florida now, but she was living over there. But I got a chance to meet Travis Walton. I got the chance to, uh, by Skype, talk to Calvin Parker. But he's the fifth most uh, per hundred thousand people, the highest number of UFO, you know. Um, uh, reports, I guess, in the country, you know, we're number five. I think Vermont's number one, actually. I never... I just hmm. saw that come up on a statistic. And then we had uh, the incident Exeter, which is really close to where Betty lived. You know, she lived in Portsmouth uh, on the coast. And then uh, the ins- Exeter's kind of next, pretty close to Portsmouth. It's two towns over. And then there's Kingston, New Hampshire going further to the west. And then North Salem, New Hampshire, are just a little further to the west of that. So... Um, you know, so New Hampshire has a lot going on and I think in eighteen seventy Mount Washington they reported a UFO that was taken right on top of Mount Washington. And I've heard both pros and cons of what that is. It does look interesting. It looks like a cylinder in the clouds. And they say that's the first photograph of the UFO and other people have said it's something else. So I don't I don't know what the I don't know what the end of that's the argument's gonna be on that, you know. Um, but I had my I flew for uh you know, I flew forty two years, thirty with the airlines and just a couple other years, just uh, flying, giving instructions and stuff, and but um, and I saw some things were flying at night. I was on the UPS system back in the eighties, flying the seven hundred and twenty-seven. Mm-hmm. I flew with a lot of guys from Vietnam and Korea, and they were, the Korean guys were just retiring. The Vietnam guys, you know, captain, co-pilot. And I was a flight engineer, and they would talk about stories, the things they saw, and they were very interested in the Betty Hill thing, and you know, and all of that. But I saw a couple interesting things. But about February this year, I saw the thing that was the most amazing thing I ever saw was at my house. Uh, we live right next to America Stonehenge. I'm looking to the west end of this. We have a big two-story, like, a window in our house. I'm looking south of Manchester, New Hampshire Airport because I was based there uh, for a few years. So I know the airport pretty well. And on the approach path to Runway 35, kind of going north, uh you can see planes coming in, and they usually turn 90 degrees, and then they head north and land on the runway, or they're landing on runway 6. But I see this really bright light. It was extremely intense, more than a landing light. You know? And I'm like, that's, that's a heck of a landing light if that's what that is, you know. And it was, But there was no uh, beacon light, you know, the rotating red beacon light. Mm-hmm. There's no green and white like you see on boats, too. It's the same, the same layout, the same pattern, you know. I didn't see any logo lights. You know, airliners have logo lights in the tail. So you can see the, the, the light, like American Airlines, whatever you say, the big logo. All it was is a bright light. I didn't see any strobes or any beacons or anything. And all of a sudden, and this is all in like about two seconds, I saw that. And I'm thinking, wow, and that seems too far north for a planet. You know, the plane in the ecliptic, this thing seems to be too far to the north. All of a sudden, the thing went straight down to the ground. And it wasn't like it accelerated. It was instantaneous to the ground. And I... And what it reminded me of is that when in Israel, over the dome where a light, uh, this bright light comes down, it sits over the dome, but it shoots vertically up in an instant. This one was straight down towards the earth. It was either that or it was heading west. But it was so quick. I've never seen anything like that. Uh, That, to me, was, you know, my UFO that I've seen, you know. And it was about the middle of February this year. And I didn't see it. I heard nothing. But I think... If somebody in the control tower was looking, they would have seen it too, you know, because it's real, it would look very close to Manchester Airport, you know, it's a pretty, pretty busy airport. So, uh, that to me was pretty amazing.
1: Wow. That is amazing. Um, another odd coincidence. Today I booked this interview. I was watching TV and I was watching some reruns of the Holzer files and you were on that episode. And you guys are doing a paranormal investigation near the uh, the sacrifice table.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they filmed that last year, and Hans started coming in 1970, and he was there in 70, 71, 72. And I think on that show, you'll see some actual, I think, super eight millimeter footage from 1972. And I must have been there then. And then 74, he brought in three different <clears throat> psychics over the course of the. Uh, the year and Myers was one of them and Ingrid Beckman was another one and then there was another one I forget the name in 75 Hans brought back another one another psychic and in 76 Hans was there and he actually directed the Leonard Nimoy's in search of episode on us and I think when you're watching that Hans uh, when you're watching the Hans file episode on us you'll see some of that footage taken during the uh, shooting for uh, Leonard Nimoy and uh and they came back several times after that. And then in 1992, he wrote the book, uh, Hans Holter wrote the book, uh, long before Columbus, which I have one copy in our in library over at our museum. And it was all about his 1970s and, and after that, his bringing the psychics to the site and everything, you know. And so now the show is on, you know, it's in the second season with David Schrader. And, um, they have, uh, three other, three other hosts that are on the show too. And, um, uh, the, the girl there, Cindy, she, she was from New Hampshire. She was up by the lakes region in New Hampshire, um, you know, Lake Winnipesaukee and Squam Lake up in that area. She's in Colorado now. And cause she came out to do the show. She was here for six days and she goes, I never heard of you guys. <laughs> you know? So a lot of people haven't heard about our place, I guess. And she, you know, she's from New Hampshire, yeah. Just like my dad used to say, it's a well-kept secret, but it's not his intentions, you know. But they were shooting for about six days, and they used a lot of Hans' uh, original recordings, you know, the sound recordings as well as his eight millimeter. And I had the opportunity right in the middle of that six days to meet his daughter Alexandra, and she's very, very nice. And she was on that show too. I think if you saw it, you must have saw her when you watched mm-hmm. it. You know. My hope was that she'd come up here, and I'd finally get a chance to meet meet her, you know, and they'd be like, no, no, she stays at the studio in New York or whatever, and all of a sudden, and I think it was a Wednesday night, I'm, well, I was at the museum around 9 or 10 in the morning, and here it is, 10 o'clock at night, and I'm ready to go home, because i got to get back in the morning to run the business, because they were shooting late into the evening, all of a sudden they're going out the back door, and there were a cast of 15 people there, so I didn't really know everybody, and all of a sudden I said, oh, hi, how you doing, I didn't know she was, she goes, hi, I'm Alexandra, you know, Hans' daughter." I'm like, oh my God, you know, and I almost missed her, so... Uh, we stay in touch too, you know, hmm. but she never came or her oldest sister never came up either during those many different times that Hans came. Hmm. So chance to meet the, at least her. I haven't met her oldest sister yet. She does want to come up and do a uh, a project. So I think that she wants to do it like what her dad did, you know, 50 years ago. Wow.
1: You know, the, the uh, in search of is what got me into all this stuff when I was a kid.
2: You know, that was like number two episode, um, I think it aired in 1977, um, and I actually, you're in the footage on the haunch, they do show uh, uh, my uncle Oz, my dad's first cousin actually, escorting Ethel Myers up from what we call the patio, he's walking her up and I'm next to, next to her, and I was about 20, I think 20 or 21 at the time. <laughs> And uh, there we are walking up there. Like It was so cool to see footage of, you know, my uncle and then Ethel. Because I'm looking at my cell phone. Is that me?
1: <laughs> and my
2: kind of, it was kind of like 40, over 45 years ago. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's always been interesting to us. We're, we're interested in archaeology, geology, astronomy, epigraphy, all the different things. Anything regarding our site, even the way the stones are shaped, you know, the quarry techniques and all of that fascinates us. You know, and, and I've always been interested in, of UFOs and, and uh, the, the other paranormal, too, what Hans was doing. I'm not really an expert in that area, but I but I find it kind of interesting.
1: Hmm. Um, the other day I was just interviewing Michael Cremo. Have you you ever talked to him about the site?
2: Well, I'm aware of him. Um, he speaks very well, and I've seen some uh, uh, different shows. Uh, if you do, again, you can mention us, though. <laughs> you know, he <I> mean. <laughs> You know, it's possible.
1: Yeah, um, I'd love to hear like what he would have to say, or like Graham Hancock or somebody.
2: And Graham Hancock knows about us. His sister in law used to come and visit us. I think she was. My wife knows the story of her. She goes, "Oh yeah, that's so and so. That's uh because he's over in England, you know, his wife. But his, his sister in law lives lived up in New Hampshire, and Graham was going to pay a uh, visit. And my wife again, she had the whole story, but because I was flying a lot, you know, I was gone a lot. But I believe there was something that happened. It was an accident in the family, and and it just his plans got all messed up, and he never came to visit us, you know. So, um, but we've had a lot of the people from uh, Ancient Aliens. Uh, David uh, Childress has been mm-hmm. to our nineties. I think he's got to come back and visit us again. You know, he was here before a lot of these things were found. But uh, Hugh Newman from England, he's been. He was up at our place with Andrew Collins, and Andrew's a great guy. He does a lot of Go beckley Kepi, and I've done a couple of radio shows as kind of a co-guest, both of us speaking, you know, to the host. And um, he lives in England, too. And, um, and then uh, Jim, Jim Vieira had his own show about the Giants and the Lost Colony of Roanoke with his brother oh, Bill. Oh,
1: yeah,
2: yep. Yeah. He was a member of Vieira, too. He was a member of my dad's group. Uh, Scott Walters was just up last week visiting me from Minneapolis, and he's a friend of Dave Schrader. You know, they're both from the same town, and and Jared's from the same town too. And I introduced,
1: uh,
2: <laughs> you know, Scott's kind of got some stuff going on too. You know, we were on his, uh, I think, his fourth episode, on mm-hmm. Rocker years ago. Scott's got some cool stuff going, but he can't talk about it. He'd have to kill me, something like that. But he'll, you know, he's writing when the stuff comes out. He's got something with TV, maybe. You know, it's kind of can't say too much, but is, if he has fans out there, you know, maybe he, may be, he may be, uh, might be seeing him doing some things. And i site like probably would be part of it, I've been reassured, you know. So uh, kind, of, kind of interesting about that, too. Well, William Shatner did us uh, 10 years ago, too, and Weird or What? And he's got that new show called The Unexplained. Um, and that's the same name as the show we were on in 1970 with um, uh, the, the, uh, Rod Serling hosted the show. It was on NBC. It was, I think, a one-hour show, and Arthur C. Clarke was on that show too. And because they they spotlighted many places, including our site, which was really, you know, we were so excited about that. Um, And that year, I actually had a chance to uh, go to New York City and talk on the Barry Farber show on WOR out of New York City. And uh, I think Barry Farber was on vacation, (coughs) so Ivan Sanderson from New Jersey, from your state was the host that evening. So my dad and I and our archaeologist, James Woodall, flew down on Eastern Airlines to LaGuardia. And then we uh, got a cab, went downtown, got a hotel. And then we, at night, went up, went through security and everything went up in the building and we talked to Ivan Sanders and, and he's he's one of the, uh, like Hans Holzer, you know, he's one of the fathers of, you know, of these unusual things. He was on the radio. In the, and even in the late 40s, he was on the radio, you know, talking about UFOs, Bigfoot. Uh, These strange stone structures in the Northeast, you know, all these different types of things. He wrote books. And uh, we visited him in 1966 at his house down in New Jersey. We stayed there and then four years later on the show with him. He used to be on the Gary Moore show and he was on the very first TV show that was in color back around 1953. I forget the name of it, but he was on that show, you know, it was like, wow, he was quite a guy. And he had a a, Situ Society, uh, the Investigation of the Unexplained, I think. My dad was a member of his group. But he was kind of like Hans Holzer, kind of like that, one of the fathers of these unusual, paranormal, strange things, you know.
1: Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. That your your site has had such a it's been around for such a long time. It has such an influence on I don't know, the sort of like the alternative culture.
2: Yeah, definitely a little different. Yeah, we get to meet so many you know, I just saw and this year, going through my dad's file, a picture of Jeffrey Ash from England. You know, He's the great uh, Arthurian historian and, uh, in England. He's like 90, he's 99, still living, but 1960, standing right by the sacrificial table. And, you know, he's still pretty famous, you know. And he we, he wrote a book, and I got the book uh, about a month ago. My daughter-in-law found it for like 25 bucks, and they list up to $800 for the book. And it was about coming across like uh, St. Brendan, the navigator in the sixth century, coming across, you know, from Ireland to the New World, and it's. But uh, he does such a nice job writing. He's it so in, he's so intelligent, you know. And I know Mark Eddy wanted him on his program this year, but as uh, publicist, can't do it. You know, I mean, he's almost a hundred years old now, I guess, <laughs> so which is unfortunate. He can't get on because he's a very interesting guy. But he wrote some really nice stuff about our site. And you know, that was uh, 1960, I think, when he visited. And there he was standing right by the table.
1: That's so cool. Wow. I, I, I can't wait to find out what happens next at your site. Um, do you have any uh, events or anything coming up now, now, that things are starting to open up again?
2: Yeah, you know, we stayed uh, pretty much open with uh, the COVID, um, you know, with all the different restrictions. But we're about 110 acres of fresh air, so pretty uh, COVID-friendly, I guess, because people would come in and for a while, we did close the uh, building and we had everything outside. We had a porta party. We had buyer tickets online, which people can still do and they'll save money if they do that. But the 12 uh, minute video in the theater, um, they can watch that online. There's a free app down site, stonehengeusa.com. You can see uh, where to buy a ticket if you want. And again, you'll save a little money in the good anytime. There's no restriction on, you can use it next year if you want or whatever. But there's also the 12 minute video. You can click on that. And then you can also click on to the free app download, and that is actually a virtual tour of the entire, you know, the, basically the whole tour. And um, you can use it as you're walking up there. It'll talk to you as pictures and text. You can actually do it at home on your couch if you like, and you can take a tour at no cost. You just have to download the app, and you know you can see the whole site. Um, our next event, uh, and we'll put we put our events up on Facebook and Instagram and on our website will be the summer solstice we'll be there to watch the sunrise in the morning and if people come in they can come back that evening too on the same ticket and watch the sunset and during the day there's going to be a celebration i think from one to four o'clock they canceled it last year and the spring but we're going to do it for the summer solstice and um and then we're going to have a drumming event coming up after that too it just hasn't been scheduled it was supposed to be for the solstice but the gentleman that does it uh i think something happened and you- he found out he couldn't do it on that day. I think it's a Sunday this year uh, for the solstice. And then we'll have the fall equinox will be the next event. And we have snowshoeing in the wintertime. And when the OSL results come out, we'll put that out there too, you know. Uh, and hopefully hopefully, Dr. Feathers and the New England Antiquities Research Association and the others that are involved will put something out to the meteor, you know. Because it could be game-changing, you know. These other sites, not just our site, but these other sites – show pre-colonial, you know, um, that they're ancient and prehistoric, Uh, that's really a big game changer in this continent, you know, and they should handle it, and I haven't heard how they're going to handle it yet, maybe they've got it all figured out, because you don't want to miss the boat on this, you know, today's news, tomorrow it's old news, you know, so they should put that out there, and then people have to rewrite the history books, I think, so...
1: Well, uh, I definitely can't wait for those results. When those come out, you definitely I'll be, I'll be trying to get you back on again. I'm sure you'll be hard to get hold of though.
2: <laughs> don't do too many more shows. He's wonderful, and he gives me a lot of shows. I said maybe we should, uh, with what Doctor Feather said, maybe we should just back off shows just a little bit because we're so close to getting some results. You know, um, why don't we wait till we get some results, and then I'll be fresh and I'll have some energy because my wife and I, and you know, even some family members are working every day seven days a week there, you know, we work. I think we had like seven days off since August last year or July last year. We had seven days off and, uh, you know, you get kind of burnt out and you do shows at night too, you know, which I absolutely love to do. But I think when the results come out, I think that's when we should get into it, you know, maybe save a little bit of my energy for that. Cause there might be uh, a number of shows that want to talk about this, you know, like you, you know, which oh, I love yeah. to do. Awesome. Absolutely.
1: Well, um, before we wrap it up, where can my listeners find you?
2: Oh, a uh, website? Yep. So, a- yeah. Uh, our website is stonehengeusa.com. And there's a phone number, email in there, too. So you know, send us some questions if you like. Um, and then, like I mentioned, you can buy your ticket on there if you like. You can get the free app download. And if people live far away that are listening that can't get here this year or next year or something like that, they can actually do a complete tour of our site and, you know, enjoy that, you know. Just download it, look at it, and then say, well, maybe we'll go there in a couple of years or something. So that's kind of nice, too. And then we'll make any announcements, you know, for the solstice, equinoxes, and then, uh, like we mentioned, the OSL results. And we're doing LiDAR, you know, the light detail, we're doing that. We're doing the, G- the ground penetration radar stuff. So we got a number of different things going on, including photogammetry, you know, taking photographs of these – uh these walls, particularly the serpent walls, you know, you do a thousand shots and then it looks three dimensional. It's really amazing. So we're doing things like that. And also we were doing thermal uh, imaging with this guy. He had like this $12,000 thermal camera with a uh, with a drone. And that's different than LiDAR, but it does it does some amazing stuff, too. You know, so we're we're doing all different types of technology, you know, uh, which I think is good. It's scientific, We're trying to make it as scientific as, as possible, you know. But, uh, so we've been very fortunate in that, but people have wanted to help us like that, so that's
1: incredible. Well, I'll post a link to uh the site so my listeners can buy tickets download the app and and hopefully come visit your site
2: well, we love that, Gary, yeah, and hopefully sometime make it up to New England and come up and be my guest and uh you know anytime you want you know
1: uh, oh absolutely i mean i'll be up I'll be back in New Jersey, but only for a week, so I won't have a chance then, but possibly next year.
2: Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, we're open every day, but Thanksgiving and Christmas or the occasional New England blizzard, but we're we're open almost every day of the year, so, you
1: know. <laughs> it does get cold in New Hampshire, I know that. I've been there.
2: Oh, we know right. it up here, yeah. Absolutely. It's nice right now, though. we had got 90 of so... <laughs>
1: Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to be on. I really appreciate it. Um, and just hang on for one moment and I'm just going to play the outro. Oh,
2: thank you so much, Gary. Thank appreciate you.
0: it. Thank you for listening to everything imaginable on KGRA radio. You can reach Gary at everything imaginable 2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh, yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed, It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review,
2: and subscribe.